It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. You can listen on your DAB radio, on the Times radio app, on your smart speaker, or at times.radio, so you've got no excuse at all. Before we get on with today's episode, I just wanted to flag that later this week we're going to have another go at rounding up some of your big ideas. You may remember that a competition has been launched in the memory of uh, Jeremy Hayward, the former Cabinet Secretary. Well, I'm going to be speaking to his wife, Suzanne, later this week about uh, the ideas which have been sent in so far. She was very impressed with the ideas we got uh, a few weeks ago when we did it on the show. And so we're going to have another go. So what is your big idea to improve the country, to change how things are run? What's the thing that you end up screaming at the radio saying... Why don't they just do this? Uh, that's what we want. It could be about spending. It could be about policy. It could be schools or hospitals or roads or benefits or the environment. Whatever it might be, uh, you just need to email me, ideally a voice note. Um, so record yourself talking into your phone and then email me matt.chorley at times.radio. And uh, we'll put some of them to, Z- to Suzanne and other policy experts uh, later on this week. Right, on with today's show then. Coming up, modern slavery in the UK and whether the pandemic has been making it worse. I speak to Dame Sarah Thornton, the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner. That's coming up next. But first, it's our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Liberace. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Do you either of you have reasons to be cheerful for us to play the hallelujahs, Libby? Uh, yes, I wrote about it this morning, actually. I'm, I'm very cheered by the vaccine rollout and I've been massively enjoying being down the down the centre as one of the no-skill volunteers who kind of man the car park and stuff. <laughs> I think the fact that it's going well and that people are in such a good mood about it and on the whole behaving so well is, is cheering. I'm cheered. It's even better than exfoliating socks. There we are. Let's, let's have some hallelujah. Now, it was really lovely reading your, your piece today, Libby, because you sort of describe what, in the end, I think the British are great at. And it's not, you know, jingoism or, you know, the stuff that makes all the noise, you know, the vaccine nationalism, all that sort of stuff. It's volunteers, normal people of all ages and all backgrounds turning out in village halls and community centres just because it's a nice thing to do and actually because secretly you quite enjoy doing it as well. Obviously, it's nice that you're helping other people, but like you, like as you write your piece, it's quite nice to get out of the house and see some people and feel like you're doing your bit. 
Well, that's everybody's everybody's fighting for shifts here. It's great, you know, because to get out and to be allowed to talk to more than one person in a day in an indoor setting. I mean, what could what could be more exciting after a month of this really dreary January lockdown? So no, it's not much altruism. It's just it's it's good fun and it's very nice to see everybody out. And I have to say, seeing the people arriving for vaccinations, just sort of cheerful generation, you know, which had sort of wartime and post-war rationing and, you know, rocked to Lonnie Donegan in the 50s and, and and now here they are carrying on, soldiering on. I find it very cheering. Yeah, we all need we all need a bit of cheering. Uh, Rachel, one of the really striking things, we were speaking to Jamie Duke Goodwin, who was um, Matt Hancock's uh, former special advisor, about the fact that this time last year was the moment that uh, coronavirus arrived in the UK. And reflecting on what what happened in the 12 months since, and he, he said you know, one of the things that Matt Hancock kept on doing was banging on about the vaccine, that we had every day that they made progress on the vaccine was, was going to be a day saved as and whenever this crisis happened. And I remember there was a piece back in... Like October, I think, um, Katie Balls wrote a column in The Eye where she quoted a Whitehall source saying, Matt Hancock is the only person here who thinks it, this, there is actually going to be a vaccine. It's a running joke with other departments. And that was only like three months ago. And now we're doing half a million a, a, a day. It's amazing, the, the the turnaround. But also, you know, maybe Matt Hancock does deserve a bit of credit for, for sort of bashing away at that. I think that's right. I, I remember interviewing Sarah Gilbert, who's the head of the vaccine team at Oxford University who's basically found the vaccine there, AstraZeneca vaccine. And she was very optimistic back in the, must have been the summer last year. Um, and she was saying, if it all goes according to plan, we could have it ready by the autumn. And at that time, you know, some some in Whitehall were incredibly dismissive. But it's a try. I mean, I think it is actually, this is a reason for optimism and also a reason to really be grateful for the brilliant scientists who worked on this. Um, and on your sort of vo- Libby's volunteering point, in fact, Sarah Gil- Gilbert's own three uh, triplet children um, were all part of the vaccine study, the test that, oh, yes. that checked whether or yeah, not it worked. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely fascinating and brilliant that she and her own family were were both personally and professionally involved in it. But they did it. They got the they got it to work, and it was sort of brilliant ingenuity and clever science that did it rather than any of this you know we're better than anyone else and it was working as a working as a team with other countries you know john bell is who's the the professor there is the head is from canada the um people who who uh devised the um uh pfizer the um pfizer biontech vaccine as a a German Turkish couple. This idea that vaccine nationalism is the answer is completely opposite the case, isn't it? It's that people coming together from all over the world have managed to produce this. And I wonder, uh, Libby, if you've detected a slight sort of shift in tone from Boris Johnson, a man that you, you wouldn't have been surprised if we'd have had a bit of vaccine nationalism from him. Um, uh, you know, in Gavin Williamson's ridiculous, you know, the reason we've got the vaccine <laughs> yes. first is because we we've got the best people. Um, actually, you know, over the weekend with the ridiculous mess that the EU seemed to get itself into, <laughs> I mean, maybe, we, maybe we've all taken to drinking a bit earlier on a Friday. Maybe that's the explanation <laughs> for it. But they did seem to get into a right pickle about trying to stop vaccines leaving Europe and then having to backtrack and, and and actually, number 10 haven't risen to it. They've tried to sort of rise above it, keep letting the figures come out daily of how many vaccines have been done and let other people sort of applaud. You know, there's been a bit less self-congratulatory than we might have expected from, you know, Boris Johnson version one. 
Yes, I, I think it cannot be said too often. Boris Johnson is not a fool. He really isn't. You know, he would have seen that, absolutely. And uh, a, a little bit of grace you know, was necessary. I mean, especially after poor old Ursula von der Leyen, who I was admiring just a few weeks ago, and people jeering at me now under the line about this. You know, she suddenly turns into the Incredible Hulk, you know, and starts ranting and roaring. And, uh, you know, that was... I think he probably saw that and saw what a terrible, graceless thing it was and, and what a graceless thing it was the EU, uh, the, the Commission did. Uh, over over Northern Ireland and realised, no, no, we're not going to do this. You know, they, they go low, we go high. And so now I think everybody's starting to go high and, and uh, it'll it'll get quite, uh, probably turn nasty again soon. But as I say, Boris is not an idiot. He really isn't. He, no way would he have done, you know, what the Education Secretary did. You know, he just couldn't have done we're the best. And also now we've actually left the EU, there's no need to kind of create an enemy yeah. there and goad them because we're separate. So in a way, weirdly, maybe Brexit's lanced that boil of having to constantly make enemies of um, the rest of Europe. Uh, and maybe it does actually give the chance to move on. And he, Boris Johnson realises that he doesn't have to goad them because he's got his way. And in a way, there's nothing more annoying for someone is if the person you're goading doesn't rise to it. You know, people in Brussels are like, why is Boris Johnson not engaging in this? You know, we, you know, if they're trying to um, you know, bolster support for uh, the EU's position, Britain piling in uh, would definitely help that. And obviously uh, that's not um, <laughs> that so far hasn't helped. Um, uh, let's move on to talk about something else. I mean, um, uh, pretty grim, it has to be said. Marcus Rashford, obviously the Man United footballer and, and leader of Her Majesty's opposition in politics as well, uh, talking about the racism he faced on social media over the weekend. Um, and, and I think uh, Prince William has now um, uh, joined the cause of, of condemnation. But it's one of those things, it's very easy to say, of course, we don't like racism on, on social media. But what could um, social media companies be doing about it? I know you've spoken to Marcus Rashford before, uh, Rachel. I mean, it's, what, what can be done about this, do you think? Well, I do think they could um, force people to actually disclose their real identity. It doesn't have to be on, you don't have to do it in your Twitter handle, but Twitter should know who each person is. So if something racist or offensive is posted, they can actually identify that person and then the police can come around or they can be punished in some way. I think it's this sort of anonymity allows all the trolls and toads to hide in the dark. Uh, and obviously, you know, that horrid, awful, vile racism does still exist, sadly. I think it's a minority of people who um, obviously who are like that, but they should be, I think, um, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Reveal who they actually are and let's see if they really do still stick to that awful position. And Marcus Rashford has been so dignified about this. He sort of, you know, he's tweeted saying, you know, this is appalling. I'm proud to be a black man, but I'm not going to sort of share all these awful tweets because there are young children of all colors and races on following me who and they see him as a role model uh and he is a fantastic role model for young people uh, so you know he's risen above it to some extent but he shouldn't have to put up with this nor should any uh black player uh, what do you think, think Libby? is it possible to to, think... to have this sort of ban on anonymity online 
Yes, I think it is. I, I think uh, it, it's like the Wizard of Oz, isn't it? You know, you, you whip away the curtain and generally there is a kind of tra tragic, sad little gnome who, who's quite frightened of themselves doing all the trolling, every kind of trolling against women, you know, racist trolling and so on. And I think we absolutely need to... Social media companies have got to be pushed and pushed and pushed to do this thing of being willing to reveal identities. And then if there is something illegal, if there is something threatening, the police can then move in. I I think Marcus Rashford screenshot the abuse. Some people who get abused online uh, racially or, or you know, um, uh, if they're women or, or trans people and so on, they, they stupidly, they screenshot the abuse. And that just gives the little sad troll uh, a sense of being more publicly, more publicly seen and more publicly uh, acclaimed by those who, who think like them. So I think, I think it's, it's all about this business of making social media companies pull aside the veil of anonymity. And I think this is a case in everything, you know, even on, you know, comment lines, you know, and chat lines. I think people should know who people are. You should be willing to put your name out there. And all three of us have had this experience. I know you often go below the line, uh, Libby. I spent an awful lot of time on Saturday uh, discussing my <laughs> column with Times readers. And it's the ones who, you know, the ones <laughs> called John Smith um, are, you know, polite. Even if they disagree with you, they're polite. The ones called like the touch paper or, you know, unlock blighty or whatever. Um, they're the ones who are amazingly rude, even though the Times do know who these people are because they have to pay subscriptions. And it's sort of um, it's sort of slightly dispiriting. But you, you, I know you take quite a sort of forthright approach with the, with the commenters, Libby. I, do, I, only, I sometimes get, get a bit irritable, especially if I think if they haven't actually read what I say in the piece. It's when people have just read the headline. <laughs> and not got yes. No, they're great. Really, most of, the, most of the readers are fantastic. And the great thing is sometimes they, they're professionals in some area and they know something and they give you an extra fact. And that's what we're all for. We're journalists. We're supposed to be sucking up new interesting facts from different directions. So I, I value it. And if I am occasionally a bit rude to somebody called, sorry, Jeff, you know, um, well, that things happen uh, yeah the most annoying thing for me is when someone comes up with a better joke than i managed in my whole column like, oh, it's so annoying <laughs> yeah. if i could go back and edit it um uh, what about you rachel how do you approach the, the commenters online do you ever engage i do and actually I've, i agree with libby that often they're incredibly interesting and that times readers know a lot and they're often very experienced in certain fields i've had um really fascinating debates with some readers but it's the as you say it's the anonymous ones who are sort of hiding that often have the most sort of the least to say strangely but they're most uh vigorous in their insults yeah no it's yeah it, that anonymity thing is um is uh definitely an issue i think it just makes people think they can write anything and it tends to be twaddle uh, just very quickly um asos uh asos sorry buying a uh, top shop and uh top man miss selfridge uh, and others. Um, but it means that these names are disappearing from the high street. Are you going to miss them, Libby? Or do you think there's an opportunity for the high street to sort of reinvent itself? You know, we all used to complain about clone towns. They're not going to be on the high street. They're, they're going to be, they're into multi-platforms, multi-brand, multi-platform strategies and so on. Uh, a lot of these shops are just going to close. And I think the, the, the loss of physical shopping is something which it, 
it, I mean, I hate it myself, but it does seem to enrich town centres and enrich a sense of all being out and milling around together as we used to be. And so I think if they're going to go more and more and more online, as ASOS is, I, I find that mm. depressing. Um, I would like to see some brave upstart newcomers kind of popping up and starting shops, which are just such fun to go to that, that, uh, that, that people abandon this desperate online thing of vans going everywhere to and fro and uh, returns and just general ungreen horribleness of online shopping. Uh, and um, Rachel, there is something about clothes shopping in particular. Uh, that, I, I mean, the whole point is you go, you want to go in and try it on. It's such a palaver if you order something online. And I've got stuff um, which I've ordered online and it hasn't fitted or I don't really like it and I haven't quite got around to sort of sending it back. It, you do feel like in, in five years' time, someone's going to come up with a radical idea that actually it's much more convenient to go into a shop and try something on uh, before buying it. I think it. this um, COVID thing, though, has accelerated what was already happening, hasn't it? That everything is... We're all stuck at home, mm. so shopping can only be done online. But I think what Libby may be right that there's a, going to be an opening for somebody who who brings together different kinds. So for clothes, for example, rather than just, you know, the big chains, somebody who has a, a kind of a really good eye for a certain kind of clothes and brings them all together and curates them in a different way. And that actually in a shop, um, those are the kinds of shops I like where you go in and rather than just it's all the same as anything you could get anywhere, you've got actually somebody who's got some interesting clothes and they put them all together and you have to see those it doesn't it's not the same online something more original perhaps but i think the high street is just going to change isn't it and the danger yeah. is that you need to have a reason to go there so if it's all you know mini golf and coffee shops who's going to be why are people <laughs> going to the coffee shops if they're, they they have to be going there for some other reason as well Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And you can, of course, read them in The Times every week. Libby on a Monday, Rachel on a Tuesday. Get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, modern slavery in a pandemic. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now let's turn our attention to this issue of modern slavery in the UK. 
It's one of those things which is still very much a live issue in the UK and hasn't gone away because of the pandemic. In fact, may have got worse. It's very difficult to put a finger, uh, a figure on how many people uh, are caught up in slavery. In Britain, it's estimated to be something like 13,000 people, but only about 1% have a chance of seeing their perpetrator brought to justice. In a moment, we'll hear from the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner, D- Dame Sarah Thornton, uh, to hear about what the authorities are doing to try and uh, deal with slavery in the UK. We thought we'd start with uh, an individual story, a case study of Haiti, who spoke to the Times podcast Stories of Our Times last year. She explained how what was supposed to be a two week holiday in the UK turned into a five year nightmare. Muskie said to Hardy, just come for two weeks. You can have a nice holiday. You've been working so hard. You can meet my family, see a bit more of the world, and then you can come back and continue your life in Tunisia. I just want to. Forget everything happened to me. I say, okay, why not? I can go to visit England. The trip was organised by a woman called Miss Gay, but when Hadi arrived in England, she was met by a stranger. The woman said, oh, look, look, Miss Gay, she called me. She asked me to come and pick you up from the airport. She's really busy. She she can't pick you up right now. And Hadi said, no, 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 I need to speak to her. I, I don't trust you. So Hadi insisted that they telephone Miss Gay. We speak, she told me, so it's my friend, you can go with her. She spoke no English, she had no money, and she'd come all that way. So she went with this woman, whose name was Suzanne. Hattie remained suspicious until Suzanne revealed that she'd been sold into slavery. She said, look, Hardy, it's probably about time that we tell you what's going on. You are not going back to Tunisia. The woman you met sold you to me and I've paid a lot of money for you and now you're going to show me that you're worth it. I said no. I don't want to come here. I just come for holiday. I have my work. I have my friend. I need to go back. But by then, Suzanne had stolen Hardy's passport, her return ticket, her phone, everything she had. And then, with the help of Suzanne's son, Hadi was able to escape. She did the cleaning in the house like she normally does. She cleaned up his room, the mother's room, the kitchen, and she came back to clean up her area where she was sleeping. And she found a letter from him. In that envelope was a hand-drawn map of how she could walk out from the house and get to the police station. And inside of it was a house key. For the moment, I just cry. I say, oh, my God. This boy is very clever. Uh, that was the story of Hadi, who spoke to the Times uh, Daily podcast, Stories of Our Times. You can you can look that up to listen to her full story wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, let's now speak to Dame Sarah Thornton, uh, the independent anti-slavery slavery commissioner, who joins me now. Morning. Good morning, Matt. So uh, for people who don't know, what do we mean when we're talking about modern slavery in practice? I mean, that story we just heard there of someone coming to the UK, thinking they're going on holiday and finding themselves uh, becoming a slave. What is that a typical story? And what sort of things are people then forced to do? So modern slavery is a, an umbrella term, really. Um, the case we've just listened to, uh, Hadi's uh, terrible story, is really a case of domestic servitude. She uh, trusted somebody, that trust was betrayed, and she was tricked into coming to this country. Um, 
she would have been working in that house by the sound of it for five years, um, working probably around the clock, available 24 hours a day with little or no pay and her freedom uh, restricted. As you heard, her passport had been taken from her. And this sort of case is particularly difficult because it's so hidden. It's happening in private homes. Uh, we know, I was looking at the figures uh, earlier this morning, uh, and in 2019, about 540 people were suffering from this sort of uh, abuse and then went to the authorities uh, and asked for help uh, and were helped. But that's just one part of modern slavery, domestic servitude. You've also got cases of sexual exploitation uh, where mainly women, but not always women, um, are trafficked uh, and are working uh, in brothels uh, across the country, um, forced to do so um, and are exploited by organised crime groups very frequently. You've then also got labour exploitation, where sometimes people might be forced to work for little or no pay and treated in the most dehumanising fashion, or they might be working in low-paid work where they're getting the minimum wage, but they're being controlled by organised crime groups who take virtually all their money from them and leave them living in the most terrible conditions and you know, quite desperate even for basic things like, like food uh, and heat. And then the more recent uh, phenomena that has been really uh, raising, I guess, in, in awareness over the last uh, few years is the uh, criminal exploitation, uh, particularly of children, but sometimes of vulnerable adults, where children, for example, are forced to carry drugs and what's known as, as county lines. But sometimes you might also have vulnerable people who are forced to uh, steal, to, to shoplift, uh, forced to beg. So it's a really kind of broad uh, umbrella term which describes all sorts of different uh, uh, forms of exploitation. And the point is it's happening in the UK today. It's just about people from overseas, is it? I think there was a report last year from the Salvation Army that found that Britons were second only to Albanians among the victims of modern slavery in the UK. So it's not... There were terrible cases of people arriving in the UK, you know, either um, against their will or, you know, and then all discovering that they've been uh, tricked. But there were Brits who end up in this situation as well. No, that's right. And in fact, on the latest figures, in terms of the numbers being reported... The largest group now is United Kingdom. And a lot of those are children who are in those awful positions of criminal exploitation where they are forced to uh, carry drugs around the country and live in the most terrible fear of abuse uh, and violence. And just to explain that this, this county lines is sort of something that's bubbled away in the background for quite a while now. Um, uh, and it, it sort of it felt as if it was a sort of local issue. It was reported by local papers and local police forces and that sort of thing. It, describe the scale of county lines across the UK. How many children do we think are, are being used in this way to, to, to carry drugs uh, across borders in that way? The numbers are in the thousands. Uh, and to be honest, that's the numbers that get reported. That will be the tip of the iceberg. But basically, uh, criminal gangs, uh, in order to kind of... Uh, uh, carry out their drugs business uh, will um, they have these telephone lines uh, and people make their orders uh, by either text or voice on the lines and the children are sent out normally from the cities to more um, kind of rural areas or small towns and they will carry the drugs they will carry the drugs in their own body uh, they will then go to some sort of house or some sort of accommodation in that town uh, and they will sell the drugs uh, when they've 
got rid of all the drugs and got all the money, they will then come back to the, the traffickers. Um, these children, um, have, having met some of them, um, the level of fear um, and exploitation is just off the scale. The level of violence they're living with is just phenomenal. And it's not just boys, it's often boys, but it's, but it's girls as well. And you'll often get forms of sexual exploitation mixed in with that criminal exploitation. It's really horrifying and it's happening uh, in our country today. And it, uh, it's happening in our country today. It's ha- it, 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 as you were just saying, the, the, the number of cases which come forward are now, most of them are now from Brits. Why is this not front page news and you know being the response being led by the prime minister and is it because we just don't we, we don't want to deal with it we'd want to turn a blind eye is it politicians turning a blind eye as a society are we not willing to to recognize what's happening you know in our communities in our you know in our neighborhoods so um it's not on the front page as much as it should be i completely agree with you um politicians have been doing some work and there's been quite a lot of uh, law enforcement work uh, but one of the big difficulties, as I see it, um, the children who are um, caught up in this are under kind of great need of protection and safeguarding. But all our kind of safeguarding laws and practices are on the whole based on the assumption that the greatest risk to a child is from the parents from within the home. And if the greatest threat is actually from criminal gangs, from people outside, people who they might meet meeting at school, uh, down shopping centres then actually the kind of the both the practice and what can be done is so much more limited. Now, there is some good work trying to work out how can we protect children, because sometimes the um, kind of easy but probably not the right answer is to say, well, let's move that child 100 miles away to protect them from that gang that's kind of trying to force them to carry drugs. But of course, you take a child 100 miles away from their family, uh, from their friends, from all their peer groups, you might be physically safeguarding protecting them but actually in terms of their psychological support you might be doing an awful lot of harm so these are the sorts of areas we need to be getting so much better at knowing how to protect children from from these criminal gangs because it's such a complex you know all these cases are so complicated there's often an issue between identifying who are the victims and who are uh, the the perpetrators and and quite often you know the the start of these investigations the 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 victims are, are are treated not as as victims but as as perpetrators well that's exactly the point the county lines business model means that the child who's carrying the drugs is both a victim and a perpetrator and our criminal justice system on the whole prefers people to be the either victims or perpetrators so when actually you've got somebody who's actually doing both because the fact that they are um, carrying drugs with the intention of supplying is quite a serious criminal offense and that's where it's difficult and i did a I published a report about three or four months ago and the kind of the first observation was that when police officers are arresting young people in possession sometimes of quite a lot of drugs um, and they might also be armed with with weapons with knives they've got to think at that first point of arrest actually is this a victim that I'm dealing with and I need to do everything I can to investigate that possibility before assuming that they're a suspect. So it's really fascinating to speak to you. I'm glad that we've been able to sort of uh, turn a light on this. The last thing I, I suppose I need to ask is what impact has the last 12 months the pandemic had on uh, on this problem of modern slavery? Well, it's had a significant prob- uh, impact right across the globe. Um, you can imagine that a lot of kind of migrant workers, people who got caught on the wrong side of borders, huge issues about people being out of work. But let, let's stick with it with the UK. 
Um, what we found is that those who are in exploitative situations, um, you know, their physical and mental harm has, uh, you know, it, it's increased. Um, they've been very isolated. And certainly in the height of the pandemic during the summer, you know, fewer people were being identified. So there's a real concern about people in those situations, particularly like the case of Hadi in domestic servitude. Um, the second thing that concerned about, I guess, is um, as people um, are maybe losing their jobs, maybe they've been in the gig economy, maybe they've been working in, you know, hand car washes, nail bars, this concern that actually um, they will feel that they have no better option than to go into exploitative work. So it creates an environment in which it's more likely in the future. But um, I was listening to your hallelujah shout outs and I, there is one hallelujah shout out in all this, which is notwithstanding the pandemic, the support for victims who've been identified, those who've been in safe homes, has been pretty undisrupted. The charities, the NGOs, all the organisations that work with the Salvation Army have continued to provide that support for people in safe houses and in outreach and have thought of all sorts of clever and innovative ways to get around the pandemic. So there has been really good support at that local level for those victims and survivors who have been identified. And just one last thought, we've spent a long time thinking about what's happened to exploitation during the pandemic and, you know, things obvious, sexual exploitation, a lot of it's gone online. Um, but to link back to that point about county lines and children, uh, it seems that that uh, model for distributing drugs has flourished during the pandemic. It's not uh, been impacted in the way you might think, and that has continued um, throughout the period. Well, there is, uh, but let's focus on the on the on the reason to be cheerful in that in that sir. But it's such a it's such a um, uh, tragic thing. This sort of stuff is happening in the UK in the twenty first century. Uh, Sarah Thornton there is the Dame Sarah Thornton is the uh, anti uh, modern slavery uh, commissioner and the anti slavery commissioner. Uh, talk to me on Times Radio. Up next, we're going to speak to two people who've worked on the front line with the victims of modern slavery. Uh, um, keep your messages coming in if you've got any uh, views on what we are discussing. You can text me 87222. Start your message with the word times. Yes, let's speak to the two people who can tell us what it's like on the front line. Kate Roberts uh, is uh, Anthony Savory UK and your manager. Hi, Kate. Hi. And uh, Andrew Wallace is the chief executive of Unseen. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Matt. Good to speak to you. Okay, nice to have you both with us. Uh, Kate, you were a caseworker for th- was it 13 years, um, helping people besides this situation. What are the sort of cases that you de- dealt with? Um, and how do how do people escape? That's the sort of thing, I suppose, when you're, you're trapped in those sorts of situations we've been hearing about. How do you escape? So I, I haven't worked frontline now for, for four or so years, but I, I as you said, I previously um, was a caseworker for around 10 years with people who were in situations such as that described by Hadi in domestic servitude. Um, and people, people mostly escaped, I mean, really, as the story said, I mean, obviously, domestic the individual situations vary hugely, but it really wasn't unusual for people to be physically locked in or just given given very little opportunity to escape even if they could leave the house it would be under supervision you know often maybe with children or to do a specific task where they would be with um with 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 people controlling them and knowing where they were so i mean we would often find that people would escape when they had a window of opportunity and it it wasn't unusual for people to turn up literally wearing only the clothes they had on um, and without 
any idea really of where they were, where um, where the address where they'd been living and exploited for many years was, the names of the people exploiting them, or um, or any identity documents which were often kept from them, their passport, um, any knowledge about their immigration status in the UK. Uh, let's bring Andrew in. Andrew, there's been a sort of long campaign uh, to to sort of get action on this, and it was coming up to now, but it be almost six years since the uh, uh, Modern Slavery Act was passed. Do you think? I mean, it was quite a battle to get it there. Do you? How, how has it worked in practice since, um, uh, in terms of trying to tackle this as a problem? Um, I, I mean, getting the act in was landmark. Um, and an important step in the process. But it is, I think, I come back to a point that you said right at the top of, of this segment, which was, what's the scale of the problem in the UK? Because have we got a proportionate response to the scale of the problem? And you said, oh, it's about 13,000. Well, that figure's from 2014, and it's a Home Office figure. The, the figure is more likely 100,000 plus. The, the other side of it as well is that the, the government said, OK, what, based on that 13,000 figure, what's the cost to the UK public purse as a whole? And it's about 3.8 to 4.3 billion pounds. Now, if the figure is 10 times in terms of the number of victims, is, you know, is the cost actually to the UK 38 to 43 billion? And, and I would say, yes, it probably is more at, at that level of, of cost in terms of you know, the support of victims, the amount that criminal gangs, uh, you know, are raking in on this. Therefore, actually, we need to have much more focus on this issue because it's a, it's a real and current problem. And at the end of it, and the thing that Kate and I both deal with, are victims highly traumatized uh, who have often been uh, beaten up, been controlled. They've lost, they, in essence, they've just become a commodity that's bought, sold and exploited. And they're creating this vast pro- profit for organised criminal gangs. And because Theresa May was one of the, the sort of the, the she took a real interest in this, both as Home Secretary and uh, then as Prime Minister. Do, do you get the feeling that, that, that the current government, I and mean, I know that there's a lot on, and I completely accept that, but is this sort of on the radar enough? Uh, do you think, Andrew? When we hear, you know, just hear Sarah there, you know, she's talking about, you know, far from, you know, the pandemic and the fact we're all supposed to be staying at home, um, uh, sort of putting a lid on some of these things, you know, county lines have flourished. Do, do you get the feeling that the government is is gripped by this as an issue? Um, it's gripped. I suppose the question is, is how gripped? Uh, you know, and in the scale of issues that the government's got to deal with, um, I would say this this needs to come up the agenda quite rapidly because of, you know, it's, it's linked into organized criminality, the, the tremendous human rights abuses that are taking place. And it's a problem that is both here uh, uh, and internationally. And it's a problem that touches all of our lives. So, you know, if, if we wear clothes, we eat food and, and we use consumer electronics, we're probably touching the lives of 40 to 60 people around the globe that are held in situations of forced labor. Um, and, you know, it's an industry, and this, again, this figure's 10 years out of date, and you could probably double it or triple it, but it's, a, and it's an illicit trade industry that is generating somewhere uh, in excess of $150 billion profit per, per annum. So it's, it's a massive problem, um, and we do need to see it moving up the agenda. And it, we see, um, you know, things sort of bubbling up. You know, we've seen the, the issue in, in China with uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province and Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, talking about he doesn't want to see British businesses tainted by this. But this isn't a problem that's just in China. It's a problem that's around the globe. Um, and during, you know, the pandemic, we've seen the scandal around PPE uh, manufacturers. We've seen the problems in Leicester as well. So this is, this is a problem that 
that keeps popping up and it needs greater focus. Uh, just finally, Kate, if people are concerned about the situation that someone else is in, what can they do about, about trying to help them? So, I, I mean, the, the, Andrew's really the one to answer that question because um, he, uh, unseen, they run the Modern Slavery Helpline, um, which, which people can call um, to, 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 and they'll, they'll collect um, data on any concerns people have and advise on a response. But I, I, just to add to that, I, I think, yes, the issue does need more attention, but we also need to look proactively at, at the root causes of slavery and looking at how we can prevent people getting into this situation in the first place. And Andrew um, quite rightly described it as a human rights abuse issue. And I think, you know, the most effective way, rather than waiting for people to become enslaved, um, which is really too late. I mean, obviously, then it is important for people yeah. to to report concerns. But we need to look at the structures we have in place that really take options away from people. So, you know, as we've we've recently left the European Union, we need to make sure that people, you know, our, our, our new immigration structures, make sure that people have options. So when they are being exploited, they know that they're still able to go forward to the police and you know, they'll be seen first and foremost as someone who's in exploitation and have their rights, you know, rights enforced rather than being seen as someone with immigration issues. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 